All right, welcome. Come on in. Find a seat. All right, so in this class, we are going to be talking about healthy soil building for beginners uh, and kind of the concept behind this class is what if you want to build healthy soil in your garden but the concept of getting a soil test and and looking at all of the chemistry of the soil is just a little overwhelming and you just want okay what is the basics that I can do from home right now to build up a healthier soil in my garden okay does that sound good so that's that's the concept that we're coming uh, behind in, in this class here. Let's have a, a quick little word of prayer before we jump in. Heavenly Father, as we talk about building healthy soil, you are the creator. You're the one who created soil and, and these principles. And just pray that you guide our minds and our hearts and give us wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so very quickly, very like 30 second introduction. For those of you who may not know me, my name is Paul Dysinger. And for many years, I worked with my family on a organic, commercial, small scale family farm in Tennessee. And then I branched off and started teaching people how to grow their own food, more on a home scale level, homestead level. Um, and so this, this comes from that context. Uh, and one of the things with home gardeners is this question of how do I build soil without, I mean, I've literally had people come up to me that have gone through soil classes and they're like, wait, do I have to be like a, a soil chemist to be able to grow my garden, right? And um, I'll tell you from my perspective, yeah, honestly, I don't believe that God created, how long have soil tests been around? <laughs> okay, very difficult question. Soil labs and soil tests, um, obviously, they have not been around that long. Um, you know, we're talking, I, I actually don't even know when the first one were. And, and I don't know, you know, I haven't done research into the past of I'm just, maybe there were ways that people tested their soil back in the day. But I, I know that they did not do it through the same methods that we do soil testing today. And how long have people been growing food? A very long time, right? So there are principles in nature to build healthy soil that do not require a chemistry degree or even, you know, just the intricate knowledge of doing a soil test. And, and just a, a quick um, background even to soil tests, you know, you get a soil test back and it, it has like all these specific numbers. Like you have 1.375 parts per million of nitrogen or of phosphorus or, you know, whatever it is, right? The truth is those are ballparks. You know, your, your soil test is not exact for your garden. You've taken a sample and it's giving you a ballpark of what you have for different things. But, you know, there's more depth than I can go into here. There, you may have some nutrients that are tied up that don't reflect in the, in the soil test uh, because they're tied up in ways that it doesn't come out in the soil testing process. There's no standardized soil testing process, by the way. Um, different labs do it differently, so there's no, there's, okay. So all of that to say, let's talk about the basics. Let's talk about what you can do um, if you don't do a soil test. So in this class, we're going to talk about the basics of soil. We're going to talk about soil and plant nu nutrition basics, because that's one of the big things with soil tests, right, is how do I make sure that my plants are getting the nutrients that they need, right? And number three, we're going to cover six 
soil health principles. And I'm going to give credit here to an organization called Understanding Ag. Um, I would encourage you to write that down and look up their, their organization. They are a Christian organization and they specialize more in large scale farming. They do consult consultations and stuff. But my dad and I went to one of their soil health conferences. They're, they had a, a class specifically on um, soil health. And you're going to see some slides in here. Uh, they gave us per permission to share the slides in a setting like this here. Um, the slides that I'm showing you are going to be available for download. Um, I'll give you a link at the end of where you can download them. So for those of you who are taking notes, that will just be a little extra um, perk, except that I can't share with you the slides specifically from Understanding Ag, okay? And you'll see the difference between them. So if you're taking notes and you want to take a specific note on, on any of those other slides, uh, just make sure to not jot it down. All right, you ready? Let's jump in. So let's talk about the basics real quick. The basics of soil. Actually, go back one, one more. Okay, you all saw a preview already, but how, what is soil made up of? Okay, minerals, dirt, clay, sand, My bacteria, yes, microbes, leaves, anything else? Worms, worms, yeah. Okay, hey, I like your answers. So, it's very in Somebody said gophers. <laughs> in a way, <laughs> sort of, all right. So you all gave me about half of what a healthy soil is made up of. And I mean, it's kind of a little bit of a trick question, but let's go to the next slide here. To have a truly healthy soil, you're gonna have about half minerals and organic matter, which is a lot of what you guys said. But then notice on the left-hand side here, you want your soil to have, be about 25% water and 25% air. And I know that we don't normally think of air and water as being part of the soil, but um, we're, when we're talking about soil and soil composition, um, we're not just talking about the minerals and organic matter. We're going to be talking about your soil structure and how your soil is structured gives it the ability to have air and water. By the way, somebody said microbes, like, you know, there's a lot of life in the soil and we'll touch on that, but those microbes need air and they need water to live, right? And thrive just like you and I, they're aerobic. Um, they need air and water. And by the way, your plants roots need air and water. So if you have a compact clay soil, does it have much air or water in it? No, because no, those particles are so small. By the way, did you know that a clay particle, you have to have like an electron microscope to see an individual clay particle? They are so, so, so tiny. If you take a, I believe it's a teaspoon, it's either a teaspoon or a tablespoon, but I think it's a teaspoon of clay and you spread it out one particle deep, it would cover an entire basket, uh, tennis ball court. Just like one particle deep. Is that, so, so like clay particles are, ex are extremely small. All right, let's um, go to the next one here. So each component plays a significant role in your soil. Soil health and fertility is a function of all these components in relationship. 
and much more. So we're gonna go through this and we're gonna try and keep it as simple as possible, but also give you like a basic understanding, especially when we get into the six soil health principles. And these are things that you can practically go back and say, how can I apply this in my garden? All right, continuing on with the basics. Minerals, um, this is where traditional soil science has focused on, is the minerals in your garden, okay? So this is where you're gonna look at, okay, do I have nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium and magnesium and you know, all these trace minerals in my garden, et cetera. Um, a lot of these, uh, now the minerals in your garden, uh, this is gonna be a lot of it, is, you know, it's crushed up um, rock particulate. Uh, you have clay, silt, and sand. These are, uh, and then mineral soil nutrients as well. Um, so this right here is basically what composes up your um, minerals. Actually, I think there's, now go back to the other slide. I don't have a clicker, so my friend here is doing a really good job at clicking through here. So this is like your basic minerals in your, um, in your, your soil. If you see on the right-hand side here, there's a very simple little test. You can kind of get an idea of how much sand to clay that you have in your soil. Um, you take a sample of soil, you put it in some water, put a water softener in it and shake it up and then let it all settle in the water. And you'll notice at the bottom here, this is gonna be your sand. It's larger particulates, right? This is going to be your silt here. It's kind of your medium particulates. And then this is gonna be your clay here at the top, those very small particulates. And it's a very simple way that you can just get an idea of your soil structure. Um, all right, let's go to the next slide. Then along with your minerals, you have organic matter. And this is uh, dead plant debris, leaves, sticks, roots, etc. Dead soil creatures, including soil microbes. You know, your earthworm dies, it becomes, it's organic matter. Um, and then you have living plant material, mostly roots of plants that are growing in the soil as well. And that is living organic matter in, in your soil. Um, and then you have living creatures, protozoa, bacteria, and fungi. Does anybody have an idea of how much living creatures are in a teaspoon of soil? Yeah, I hear mumbling here and there. Um, so I just, just think for a moment of a teaspoon, like you're in your kitchen, you're cooking, right? A teaspoon, how big is a teaspoon? It's really not that big, right? So you put a teaspoon of soil in your hand. It's a very small little thing. Um, if you were to put that teaspoon of soil, a healthy soil, okay? Different soils are gonna have different amounts, but a healthy soil, if you were to put it under a microscope, and let's just pretend that you are going to count the bacteria, the protozoa, the microorganisms, one every second. How long do you think it would take to count? A month. Somebody said a month, okay. Anybody else have a? A year, years, a week? It would take 31 years at a second to count. There is literally like a billion or more microorganisms in a healthy soil in just a tiny little, tiny little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's either, it's like 28 to 31. I forget the exact, the exact number, but it's, I mean, and we can't get that exact. It's more ballpark, right? Because every, every soil is a little bit different. 
Um, but it just gives you an idea. Like when you're walking in your garden, you're actually walking on a living, like the, the ground, we think of it as this inanimate thing, right? But it's actually filled with life, or it should be if it's healthy. And we'll talk about how that impacts your plants in a second here. All right. So uh, the next uh, section, so we talked about the minerals, we talked about the organic matter. Now let's talk about the pore spaces, because remember at the beginning we said that basically half of your soil really should be air and water, right? So is essential for air and water to have movement in your soil and to be able to um, infiltrate your soil. All right. Why are air and water necessary? We touched on it before. Ex yes, exactly. Um, those living organisms, all that life, it's essential for it to have that air and water. And what creates pore space? Let's go to the next slide. So you have sand and gravel in the soil. And you, I mean, if you take a handful of sand, you can see that there's little spaces between the sand, right? Because it's a larger um, particulate. Um, so having sand and gravel and larger, larger rock particles with other smaller rock particles is going to create more of a structure that has more pore space. But it's very interesting, the activity of soil creatures, your worms, ants, and others, are going to, actually, are going to also create pore spaces. Uh, if you think of an earthworm moving through the soil, it's, it's going to leave some pore spaces behind it, right? And it goes to the next level in what we call soil aggregates. Anybody know what a soil aggregate is? Basically, it's just a clump of little particles in your soil that are clumped together. So let's say you have some sand and some clay and some organic matter, and they're kind of stuck together, and they've got like a little sticky glue that's holding them together, and it creates an ideal soil structure is kind of like a chocolate cake, okay? So what happens if you take a chocolate cake and you just kind of crumble it in your hand? You see all of these crumbles, right? There's little parts that they're, they're kind of stuck together, but they have pore spaces in between them, and they're, they're, they're like crumbles. So that's what aggregates basically are in your soil, is you want a crumbly um, structure. What happens if you take that chocolate cake and you put it in the blender? It just kind of pulverizes it, right? And it's not going to have that crumbly structure anymore. It's now going to have just a very... Well, yeah, with it, I mean, let's pretend you dried the chocolate cake out, right? You know, instead of, it could become, you know, if it was wet, it would just become like this flat gooey, you know, it wouldn't have any airspace in between it. Um, if it was dry, it would become like dust, right? It would just be like this very fine. So you want that crumbly structure with the aggregates. All right, so let's talk about these aggregates really quickly. Aggregates are minerals and organic matter bound together in little clumps that vary in size and shape, makes those little crumbles. Soil aggregates are key, and they're a visible indicator of your soil health if you have an aggregated soil. All right, so we'll talk a little bit more about aggregates later. Here's a very quick, by the way, so these slides from Understanding Ag, they are the ones that have like the black background and then these pictures on them. So here's an example here. Um, so this is an example of two different types of soil. Anybody can guess what this soil is? Clay. 
Yeah, this looks like a pretty hard packed clay, right? And anybody guess what this soil is? Well, you can see right here, it says forest, right? So this is, this is soil that has been taken from the forest. You can see the, the plant matter on top, the litter. Um, and if you look under a microscope here, you can see, can you guys, I, it's not that easy to see, but you can see larger pore spaces here in the, in the soil from the, from the forest than the clay right there. All right. So let's talk about soil and plant nutrition basics next. So that was, that was the basics of soil. That's just your soil structure. You want those aggregates. That's kind of the ideal of where you want. Now let's talk about nutrition basics. It's really not possible to talk about soil health without talking about plants and soil biology because literally everything in your garden is connected together. Did you know that life is basically the greatest geological force that there is. And I mean, you think about it, God created life. And have any of you ever seen this, seen a tree growing out of a rock face? Have any of you ever wondered why the tree looks so healthy and your garden looks so terrible? <laughs> no. <laughs> just, just go like, where's the, where's the healthy soil that it's growing in, right? It's very fascinating. Um, we're going to touch talk about this, but the tree's roots go into this rock and um, I don't know if it's in the next slides, but I'll just talk about it here real quick and we'll skip through the slides if it's repeating itself. But the tree's roots go into this rock and the roots exude exudates, which um, which will basically it's, it's just like think of it like a sugary substance that the roots exude and it fosters bacterial life the bacteria live in that root exudate break down the rock matter and make minerals available back to the tree who is growing in the rock just a very simple isn't that amazing all right so the sun it all starts from far from the soil and far from this earth, and that is with the sun. Um, let's go to the next. So light from the sun is what drives plant nutrition, soil health, and really life on earth, if you, if you think about it. Um, it's a very special that God made earth. It, isn't it amazing that scientists have had har such a hard time finding any other planets that are in the right <laughs> sphere for life, right? Um, in photosynthesis, the plant uses energy from the sun along with carbon dioxide and water to produce sugars. This is that, and we're going to call it liquid carbon, um, or that's what other people call it, liquid carbon, um, these sugars. And so let's go to the next side. And so you have this liquid carbon pathway where the sun is shining down, the plants are having photosynthesis with the sun, and they are by with that photosynthesis with the carbon dioxide and the water they're creating these sugary liquid carbon substances which we'll go to the next slide so the liquid carbon pathway the plants take in the carbon dioxide and uh, and water photosynthesis occurs using the energy from the sun oxygen and carbohydrates this liquid carbon are produced and a portion of this liquid carbon is moved to the roots of the plant. And it's exuded from the roots of the plant into the soil. That's what we just talked about. 
And here you can actually see it under a microscope. This is the root, and these are this liquid carbon exudates that are coming out of that root into the soil, leaking exudates. All right. So a large portion of exudates is consumed by microbes. So your feed, the plant is literally feeding the microbes in the soil. And a part of it combines with water to form carbonic acid. All right, this mild acid breaks down rocks and other organic matter, and then the microbes. So I told you that the microbes broke down the rocks, but it may be more accurate to say that this acid breaks down the, ro the, the rock and then the microbes, um, which makes nutrients available for consumption by soil microbes. So the acid breaks down the rocks, the microbes then take up those nutrients from the rocks and they in turn make it available to the plant. Um, so there is uh, what's called the rhizosphere. This is a thin, around each root, there's a little, there's a little, um, just around the edge of each root, there's a, what's called the rhizosphere. It's a thin exudate rich film that surrounds the roots and has a heavy microbial population. So we're going to highlight three types of microbes that operate in the rhizosphere. Now, I don't want to go in. You guys finding this interesting? Yes. Okay, good. Um, we're going to talk about these three types of microbes just very quickly. Um, it, it gets a little bit more, more deep, but I'm trying to keep it as simple as possible for the sake of this class, right? So you have mycorrhizal fungi. That's one type of microorganism. You have diatrophs and you have heterotrophs. Um, so let's go to the next slide here. Um, we're going to focus really specifically on the mycorrhizal fungi. They form a symbiotic relationship with plants' roots, and they actually extend the reach of roots through mycelial hyphae, expanding the rhizosphere into what is called the microrhizosphere. Okay, in simple language, what is that? Have any of you seen fungal strands? Okay, so what fungus does is it, it's almost like it kind of acts like a root in itself, right? It sends out these little strands in your soil. Um, and what happens is that they create symbiotic relationships with your plant, and the plant can actually communicate with the mycorrhizal fungi and say basically like, I need this nutrient, and the mycorrhizal fungi strand goes out into your soil and there's this entire pathway of symbiotic communication between them and actually even between from plant to plant through these mycorrhizal fungi um, that is literally almost mind-blowing. It's, it's pretty crazy. Um, I watched a video. Um, okay, what time is this class supposed to end? 11.30. 11.30, okay. So I watched a video and they did an experiment with grass and they stressed the grass with drought. And they wanted to see, uh, because they noticed that some, some grass, if it was stressed one time with drought, it would be, but not killed, it would be more resistant to drought the next time, right? Because it, ha it had this experience and it's like, okay, I'm gonna learn from that. It's amazing how God created this. What's even more amazing is they took, they took different containers with this grass and they took one grass and they split its roots into two, okay? So half of the roots are in one container, half of the roots are in the next container. And then they took another clump of grass, split its roots in two, so half now are in the container that is sharing roots with the first plant. You guys following? 
and half are in the next container, and they created this, this chain of, of plants. Now, they only stressed the first plant with drought, okay? They only stressed the first plant. So, and then they, so they stressed it, but they didn't kill it. Um, so it, it went through the stressful experience like they had done in the previous experiments. And so they know that, okay, this plant is going to be more resistant to drought. And then they took a set of, um, so they, they have this one set where one of the plants was stressed. And then they took another set of grass where it was not stressed ahead of time at all. And they put both sets through an extreme drought situation. And it's absolutely phenomenal. This video is on YouTube. I don't, I could give you, the, I could find it for you if you're interested, but at, at, yeah. at the end of, it, I forget, it was like one, two, three weeks of like no water whatsoever. And the plants, the set of plants that had had no stress whatsoever ahead of time were just completely dead, like keeled over, brown as brown could be. The entire set of plants where the one plant had been previously stressed still had green and were alive but only one of them was stressed. So somehow it communicated, not just to the plant it was next to, but down the entire chain of plants to the other plants that, hey, we went, you gotta prepare for a stressful experience. Isn't that phenomenal? <laughs> just absolutely phenomenal. And, and they're pretty sure that it's through the, the mycorrhizal fungi or the, the soil organisms that are communicating through their roots. Okay. Um, this increased surface area comes in con into contact with up to 100 times more soil if you have mycorrhizal fungi. So your plants, basically you're increasing your plants' reach by up to 100 times if you have mycorrhizal fungi growing in with your plants. Um, all right, oh, question. So what happens to all of those strands of mycorrhizal fungi if you go in with a rototiller? It's just gonna break them all up, right? And then they're going to have to start all over with growing again, right? So just think of how much you could set your garden back by breaking all of that, all of that structure that has already been set up with your plants um, with your rototiller. Okay, so we'll go on to the next slide. Um, healthy populations of mycorrhizal fungi have been shown to, one, increase the availability of nutrients to plants, improve drought tolerance, which is what we just talked about, increase pest and disease resistance, and speed up development of plants and roots. They have pictures of, I believe, it, I believe it's uh, fungi. They have pictures of nematodes. Have any of you had problems with nematodes in your soil? Okay, we have, we have at least one. So there are beneficial nematodes and there are uh, bad nematodes. We'll just call them bad nematodes, right? And there is, there's, they have pictures of, for example, like I, f I think it was a tomato root and they have a picture of a nematode burrowing into the root of a tomato. Now they have another picture of a tomato root that's covered with mycorrhizal fungi as the symbiotic relationship, and the mycorrhizal fungi is strangling the nematode. Sounds kind of <laughs> so. You know the 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 relationships between these microorganisms and your plants, like I said, are just mind blowing. And really, scientists feel like we're just like, there's so much that we still don't know. They're just learning so much all the time. All right, so let's go to the next slide. <clears throat> all right. So the second one here is 
Diazotrophs. These are microorganisms, mostly bacteria, that fix nitrogen from the air and convert it into forms usable by soil organisms and plant roots. There are two primary categories of diazotrophs. There's symbiotic diazotrophs and free-living diazotrophs. Um, go to the next. Diazotrophs slow nitrogen fixation or shut it down altogether when, number one, synthetic nitrogen is added to the soil. This is a, a, a big plug for not using synthetic nitrogen because it actually shuts down the natural process of nitrogen being able to make available to your plants. Number two, when soils contain excess levels of oxygen, as in the case after tillage. So um, that's just another, we talked about the mycorrhizal fungi, but this is another way that tillage impacts your, um, the life in your soil and the way that life makes nutrients available to your plants. All right, next slide. Third one here is heterotrophs. Organisms that cannot produce their own energy. This category includes many bacteria and fungi, as well as nematodes, insects, mollusks, earthworms, and who said gophers? <laughs> so, animals. All right. Um, next. All heterotrophs require the fuel that is originally supplied by photosynthesis. Um, the soil heterotrophs thrive best in undisturbed soil that is covered with plant material. And among heterotrophs, there are decomposers, predators, and prey, aerators, and mixers, all compromising the diversity that keeps nature balanced. All right, this is just a picture of, this is like a root tip, and, um, well, we won't go into the details on this picture. Um, it's, it's showing the, <clears throat> the root tip and did you know that actually roots, this is like next level, but roots actually take up bacteria into them, like into the plant itself. And what they'll do is they like, they dissolve the, the outer shell as it were of the bacteria and that bacteria lives inside the plant. It's still living for a while. And then they will spit it back out and it will like die in the soil and become, um, you know, food for something. It's just phenomenal, the complexity. Okay, let's go to the next slide. Um, six soil health principles. Number one, so let's take everything that we just talked about. That, that, that was to give you a context of your soil, right? You have these minerals, you have the rock particles, but when it comes to soil plant nutrition, you have this incredibly important relationship between the life in your soil and your plants, um, fueled by this liquid carbon pathway where the plants exude the, the liquid carbon, the microbes eat it, um, some of those microbes die, the nutrients become available to the plant, the plant takes it back up, etc. and you have this entire cycle. By the way, one of the things that kind of, when I went to this class that just, just kind of lit up in my mind was, you know, what do we eat to thrive? Plants, right? We eat something that was living, right? So life, well, of course it dies and then we eat it, but life gives life, right? So we eat something that was living. Oftentimes we look at our plants and we think of them as just taking up all of these inanimate minerals. But really a lot of it is, and you know, we, we eat minerals too, right? 
So we have like salt and, and other minerals that our body needs as well. And so similar things happen with plants, but in the plant um, ecosystem, it's really life is giving life again because the plants are taking up these bacteria that used to be living, right? And it's got created this whole cycle. Um, it's not just a, um, a static plant eating minerals scenario. All right, six soil health principles. Number one is minimal disturbance. So these are things that you can practically look at your garden and say, how is this being applied in my garden to create a better um, soil health? Both this is talking about both mechanical and chemical disturbance. So let's talk about what tillage can do to soil structure. Tillage destroys your soil structure. Very simple way of thinking about it is your chocolate cake put in a blender. You know, it's just gonna break up that soil structure. Tillage reduces water infiltration. Um, when you blend up that chocolate cake and it turns to powder, it becomes more like clay, which is it easier for water to get down into the clay? No, it takes, you know, it doesn't have that porosity, that air space. Um, and tillage reduces organic matter. Um, and it also increases weeds because you're constantly pulling up new weed seeds that were further down. You know, the weeds that actually sprout, most of them are on the top, like quarter, half inch, maybe inch of the soil. And each time you till, you're bringing up new seeds that were further down, so you increase your weed problems. All right. Same slide, actually, just showing the larger pore space on the left um, and the very compact. I believe, so this is called the last part of a monoculture. This was like a field that had just been growing corn for I don't know how long or something like that. I don't remember the specifics, but I believe that this was actual ag agriculture land um, right there. Um, so they're contrasting like, you know, this is what you're growing your food in, but this is the forest, etc. Okay. And I'm pretty sure that that was using just regular standard tillage. All right. Tillage destroys soil structure by breaking up soil aggregates, like we talked about. Aggregates provide structure to soil, which increases the porosity of the soil for better air and water movement in the soil and increases water infiltration and retention. And it reduces runoff and erosion as well. Um, so spaces are essential for biology and water infiltration, as we talked about earlier. All right. Aggregates are formed by the life in the soil, actually. Um, plants' roots, the exudates that plants' roots put out, um, organic, around organic matter by bacterial and fungal decomposers, polysaccharide glues. Um, by the way, actually, I'll get to the next one. The activity of earthworms and mycorrhizal fungi play a star role in the development of soil aggregates, fungal hyphae, and glomalin produced by fungal hyphae. Basically, these microorganisms create like these sticky glues that help hold the, soils, the soil particles together. Does that make sense? So they're, the life is in the soil there. They make these little sticky glues, and they create these aggregates in your soil. Mycorrhizal fungi um, and biology build soil aggregates. All right. So ways to increase mycorrhizal fungi. Number one is to reduce or eliminate chemical usage in your basically grow organically. 
um, reduce and eliminate tillage in your garden and reduce and eliminate synthetic fertilizers in your garden. And keep living roots in the soil as much as possible because those living roots are creating the relationships with this fungi, which then, you know, the fungi creates larger ecosystems and expands, etc. So number one is minimal disturbance. Number two, and, and I just want you to think about the way God created nature. How often does the forest get tilled? No, not, not very much, right? Or how often does the prairie get tilled? And by the way, when you go into the forest, you know, how many... Hey, there's always, there's always exceptions, right? But how many of the trees are just covered and almost dead because they're being eaten by bugs? <laughs> right? You, you know, every once in a while, you'll find that scenario happening um, when, when the ecosystem gets off balance. But when there's a balanced ecosystem, you have a thriving forest and those plants actually look healthy, right? Um, all right, number two is armor or mulch. Um, this is a, a picture, and I credit this to Ray Archuleta. He's one of the guys from Understanding Ag. And he says, the soil is naked, hungry, th thirsty, and running a fever. This is just a, like a plowed field, right? This is a disrupted ecosystem. It's been disrupted. Um, dysfunctional e soil ecosystems. In a dysfunctional ecosystem, you're going to find soils that start forming a crust over the top of them, right? Um, you can see in his hand there, it's just like a, a crusty soil. And by the way, this is gonna have very low water infiltration. Um, when water runs on, comes onto here, if it rains, a lot of it's gonna run off. It's gonna have soil erosion, etc. All right, here is just a picture of him. You know, you can tell it's just very dusty soil. This doesn't have that aggregate structure, all right. Residue buffers against heat. So when you have your soil covered with a residue, like in this case, it's, it's like a straw or hay, it's going to create a buffer against the sun's heat. And let's go to the next slide here. So let's talk about your soil temperatures. At, if your soil temperature is around 70 degrees, 100% of the moisture can be used for growth. When the soil temperature reaches 100 degrees, 15% of your moisture is used for growth and 85% or so is lost to evaporation and transpiration. Okay, so you're losing a lot of your moisture now. If the soil temperature moves up to 130 degrees, 100% of your moisture is lost through evaporation and transpiration. And I think it's in this range and above. When you get above 140 degrees, there, it, your soil biology is severely affected. Um, but I think that even like 130 and above begins, you know, you start killing off the biology in your soil. What happens is soil that is bare quickly reaches these temperatures. Um, the sun, it, it just acts as a absorber of the sun's heat and it, the temperatures just rise in that soil and you end up um, affecting your soil biology. All right, let's go to the next slide. S under a mulch, that heat is going to be buffered and your soil will actually stay fairly cool under that mulch. And um, here it says the soil temperatures are acceptable. And you can see, does that look like a crumbly soil, right? You can see the earthworms in it already. All right, let's go to the next slide. All okay, right, so we have 
Number one is minimal disturbance. Number two is armor, cover the soil, mulch. And by the way, again, this is a principle from nature. If you go into the forest, how much bare soil is there? It's usually covered with leaves. There's like this, you know, this litter of organic matter. It's mulched, basically. If you go into the prairie, how much of the soil is, is bare? How much? It's, it's covered with grass, right? There's living, living things on the soil. All of nature, like nature, as soon as there's bare soil, nature starts covering it. Whether it's growing something new or, or um, covering it in some way. All right, number three is diversity. Um, the importance of diversity. We live, nature is incredibly diverse. And uh, that diversity plays into a healthy, thriving ecosystem. Um, in 2006, Dr. Adamir Caligari said cover crops should be seeded in multi-species cocktails. How many of you are familiar with cover crops? Okay, so a good, good number, if not most of you. Basically what a cover crop is, is it's a crop that's grown in an area, let's say you're not going to be planting a, a what we would call a cash crop in farming or a crop you're gonna harvest from, but you want to grow something just to improve the soil for that area. Afterwards, you're planning to either till it in or knock it down or something like that. Oftentimes, farmers will put in cover crops and they'll just put in one species or maybe two or three mixed together. But these guys decided to do an experiment with multi-species cover crops. And let's go to the next slide. So here are some cover crop demonstration plots. And here's what, ha okay. So here's what happened. They did, they set up demonstration plots of cover crops and they said, okay, let's take, I've, it was either like seven or eight species of, of crops. So you have like legumes and grasses and you know, multiple different mixture of species. And then they said, okay, let's take up, I, I'm pretty sure it was seven. And they said, let's create seven plots where we're gonna grow each species by itself. And then we're gonna make an eighth plot where we grow them all together, okay? So here are some pictures. After the season was over, they, ha they ended up having an, a pretty bad drought that summer. And so the cover crops did not do that great. As you can see, the turnips here by themselves, they're mostly keeled over, uh, dead. Oilseed radish was another individual one that they did. You can see it's mostly dead. This is the cover crop mix on the exact same day, had the exact same amount of rain, had the exact same, you know, it's just the exact same um, environment, but the mix looks like this, whereas the individual ones just died out. So diversity, they play into each other, and they, the relationships they form with each other actually made them thrive through, through a drought. All right. Here's the actual numbers when they harvested them. You can see... Oil seed, purple top turnip. So this is in like the 1,000, 1,000, 2,000, 1,000, 1,000, 1,000. The mix is almost 5,000, 4,000 and a half pounds. Um, the amount of matter that they actually took off of those cover crop areas. Not only do the fungi provide for the needs of one plant, but the fungal hyphae pipeline connects to multiple plants. This helps satisfy the nutritional and energy needs of microorganisms and the plants. <coughs> Here you can see, I believe this is the mixed cover crop and this is the single. I believe. All right. So this is the influence of functional diversity and composition of an ecosystem process. Basically, this is 
the amount of plant mass that is grown in the area and the number of species that are grown. So as you can see, as you get a higher number of diversity, you have a higher number of plant mass. So if you're growing cover crops, you want more plant mass is the idea. All right, diversity drives soil health as well. Here are some mycorrhizal friendly species, oats, barley, flax, clovers, sunflowers. Um, so if you are in your garden or your farm and you want to um, grow some cover crops that will encourage the mycorrhizal fungi in your garden, these are some friendly species that you might want to include in your cover crop. And you may want to have a larger variety of species in your cover crop. Uh, by the way, how, how many of you are market gardeners or growers or... Okay, yep, so we got, we got a few. Um, if you're growing cover crops, there's a company called Green Cover Seeds that you can build your own cover crop um, mixes. And you just go on their website and you can, act, you can choose which ones they want. They'll mix the seeds together for you and send them to you. All right, let's go to the next one. All right, so what were our, we have number one was minimal disturbance. Number two is armor, mulch. Number three is diversity. Number four is living roots in the soil. So what you want to do is you want to optimize the soil energy collection and the feeding of your microorganisms in the soil, right? And the way you're going to optimize that is to have plants growing as much as possible, right? Because the plants are the ones that are feeding the microorganisms and creating this, this cycle that's going on in your garden. So you want to keep living roots in your soil as much as possible. Um, it all begins with photosynthesis. The more photosynthesis, the more liquid carbon being pumped into the system. Roots build organic matter and cycle nutrients with your plants. All right. Number five. So number four was? Living roots in the soil. Number five is animals. Um, and we'll go to the next slide. So you want to feed the whole. Now, if you look at nature, well, by the way, for any of these, these principles literally come from nature. You know, you, you look at the, you look at the, forest, how much roots are in the soil, right? There's a ton of living roots in the soil. The prairie, there's a ton of living roots in the soil. In nature, animals are part of the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. God created it that way, okay? So you want animals, um, and in our gardens, we can incorporate that to a greater or lesser extent. You may, want, you may have some chickens. You can use the chicken litter, you know, in your garden, and that helps boost the microorganism um, activity in your garden as well. So feeding the whole. Let's go to the next slide. Wildlife. And by the way, the more... Aren't these cute little... <laughs> you know, the more, the, the more diverse your ecosystem, this goes back to diversity, the better it is for your garden or for your farm. Let's go to the next slide. Insects. These insects are a big part of your ecosystem. Um, for every insect species that is a pest, how many are beneficial? So, so the next time that you get mad at your pest insect, remember there's a lot more that are beneficial. And what you want to do is you want to create an environment that, that draws insects, beneficial ones, right? 
into your garden. And the, the more you do, the less, the less actual pest problems you'll have because the ecosystem will balance itself out. I have watched with my own eyes wasps killing and eating little green caterpillars on my brassicas. I actually have video of it. <laughs> the wasp literally lands on the back of the caterpillar, like stings it or, you know, it, you, it literally like severs the caterpillar. The caterpillar dies and the wasp like sucks up part of the caterpillar. Um, if you, <laughs> okay, that might sound a little gruesome, but <laughs> if you're mad at your caterpillars eating your brassicas, then you're like, yes, uh, my wasps are... Um, this is a typical Iowa cornfield. This is about how much diversity is in a typical Iowa cornfield. You've got, you know, some mushrooms, some corn, grasshoppers, crickets, or maybe two types of grasshoppers, some spiders, a fly. This is the native prairie. This is what it's this is what God created it to be. This is what it's supposed to be. A large diversity. Um, and, and so you want to encourage that in your garden. So this ties very much into the diversity aspect. It's not just a diversity of plants. It's a diversity of insects. It is a diversity of animals. Um, the more, the better. All right. Next slide. And number six is context, because everywhere is a little different. Okay. Um, if you're living in Florida, it, your, your environment is a little different than if you're living in Maine. And so you have to consider um, that when it comes to your garden as well. All right. All right, we gotta hurry because we're running out of battery. So context, this is environment. Uh, this is what you're given. You know, you, there's a certain extent where you can't change your context, right? Uh, let's go to the next. This might be your latitude, your daylight hours that you have, seasonal patterns, temperature patterns, plant hardiness zones, wind, wind patterns, rainfall, how much rain you get overall, um, natural flora and fauna, and the lay of the land, orientation, the slope, the drainage, etc. Some of these things you can affect to a certain degree. Um, oh, thank you. All right, next slide. Your context also includes resources, what you have available to you. So economical, that's the capital. I, okay, so we're, we're, this is branching off a little bit more into the farming side. You know, how much capital, how much income resources, amounts, markets, access to markets, etc. Physicals, your tools, your equipment, your infrastructure. This plays into your context. Um, also is your community, um, your family, your neighbors, your social groupings, search social clubs, work business associates, etc. Your context is going to affect how you approach your garden. And, and it's good to just recognize that. The very fact that you're at AdAgra, AdAgra is shaping your context of how you, this presentation may be shaping the context of how you approach your soil in your, in your, in your garden, right? Your government, your city, county, etc. Um, your values, right? And a lot of your values are passed down from your family or from your community or from, you know, what, what you value. Um, spiritual, philosophical, your worldview, you know, faith in the creator. This is, this is a context that we as Christians bring to gardening that a lot of people don't. Um, how he created it to be and to function. Um, it informs our worldview and colors how we see all of these things. 
and good decision making requires a good understanding of our context. The context will be different for each and every person, home, garden, or farm, but these other five, so context basically creates the center here, but these other five principles can be applied in every context. Does that make sense? Your mulch, let's see, where's the armor over here? Your mulch might be different from my mulch because of the context that you live in. So you may have a lot of people around you that do hay, right? And maybe you end up using hay as your mulch in your garden, whereas I might use more leaves from, you know, that I rake up off of my lawn or something like that. Your context, but these principles in and of themselves, there's going to be different animals in different areas of the world, right? But the principles apply in every context. So you need to look at your context and say, what can I apply here? So I think this is our last slide. What time is it? Then maybe we'll have a couple questions questions at the end here as well. This is a, a, an example. The, the six principles that we just covered there are from that organization that I mentioned, Understanding Ag, and uh, there are other organizations that talk about them as well. But what those six principles are packaged in what is termed regenerative agriculture. Basically what that means is we as gardeners and agriculturalists want to regenerate our land. We, we want to restore it back to what its original should be, right? So we want to restore the ecosystem. We want to encourage that biodiversity, etc. This there were, One of the men there, was his name was Gabe Brown, and he uh, has been doing regenerative agriculture, no-till agriculture, high-density I believe that is. I think this is zero synthetics because um, he uses no chemicals and he um, incorporates livestock as well on his farm. They decided to do soil tests on his farm where he had been doing this, I forget, 10, 15 years or something like that. They decided to do soil tests on his farm versus three farms in his local area. Okay, so same context. Same soil types, as it were, because they're all in the same local environment. One was a no-till farm who did, oh, this is not density, it's diversity, medium. He did medium diversity. It wasn't as high diversity, um, but he used high synthetics in his land. This farm did no-till, low diversity. This farm did tillage, medium diversity, and zero synthetics. I believe this was an organic, organic farm right here. This, this is the soil test results. This is nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and this is, this is like the organic carbon. Anyways, it's a different, um, these are your three main. And these were the results that came back from those three farms versus his farm down here. Phosphorus, 156, 244, 217, 1006. He, he had literally put zero inputs into his farm, except for seeds. Of course, you plant seeds, right? And his livestock. But his livestock are just eating what's there. I mean, he may bring in some hay or something. Potassium, 95, 136, 199, 1,749. So my question to you is, how much of these are potentially already in your soil, but not yet available to your plants. 
you know, they, these farms are in the similar context, but using the soil health principles, he has built up massive amounts more of the nutrients for the plants, as it were, than other farms who are adding minerals and adding, I mean, how much money is that saving him from all the purchasing of amendments for his farm, right? There's a whole lot more that can go into this, but that's just a, just an example. So it's pretty exciting stuff. Class handouts, um, if you go to borntogrow.net forward slash ad agra, um, this presentation minus some of those slides is available um, there. It's pretty, ex pretty exciting stuff. So well, just to recap, and then I'll catch a couple questions. I know some people may need to go. It is the end of our time. Focus on those six soil health principles. And if there is one thing that you can do to improve any soil, it is find natural organic matter in your area. Compost, um, worm castings, add it to your soil, and it will help with this process of encouraging the life and biology in your soil. Yes? How do we control weeds then if we don't grow the till? Then cut it superficially or what? Yes, so very good question. And one of the, one of the biggest ways that, you, that can help with the weeds is with your mulch, with your armor on the soil. If you have a good mulch on your soil, you'll have much less weed problems. And actually the weeds that come through are extremely easy to uh, pull out because your soil, just a personal um, testimony of this is, so my dad was the one that wanted to go no-till with our garden. And we'd always done minimum tillage where we would use like a broad fork. We didn't use a rototiller, but we would loosen the soil with a broad fork. And so we had this bed that had grown a cover crop. I'm gonna try and make this real fast. Uh, and my dad was like, I wanna just do this no-till and plant, like we're gonna kill the cover crop and plant directly into it. And I was like, dad, don't you think we should just like broad fork it up, loosen the soil a little bit? No, he wanted to do it the other way. So, so we did, and we were literally like chiseling into the soil because it was not loose. The soil was not loose and we were planting these plants directly into this stubble of, um, of the cover crop that was grown there. That was in the spring. By the fall, I pulled apart the, the we, we cut the cover crop, we put it back on as a mulch. I pulled apart the mulch and I could literally push my hand down into the soil just as if it had been broad forked. It was incredible and we had done nothing to it. And the plants that grew there grew just as well as the ones in our broad fork beds. Okay, so you cut the cover crop, leave the roots in, those roots are mm -hmm. a good thing, and then you put that back on the disturbing of the soil really. Yeah, yeah, so we cut the cover crop, we put a tarp over the stubble so it didn't grow back um, and, and killed it off. And then we brought the, we kind of half composted the tops of the cover crop and brought it back as a mulch and put it back on top, yeah. Yes? Mulch size. Mulch size. In other words, some mulch can be bigger than yeah. Yeah, um, I don't think it, it matters as much. The smaller it is, the faster it's going to break down. Um, so you may need to replenish it more often. Also, the type of mulch, if you're using like wood chip mulches from trees and stuff like that, it's going to take longer to break down. And there's a, there's a whole, um, yeah, depending on your context, you may want to incorporate, I would encourage incorporating a multi-diverse. Remember talking about diversity? Put leaves on there, put straw on there, put multiple diversity of mulches on there in the back. Did you find, because I keep on hearing with mulch that it will limit your nitrogen in the plants, and what's the old vaccine? 
No, it will be an issue if you till your mulch into the soil, then it will tie up the nitrogen in the soil. But as long as it's on the top, you should have no issues with, with the nitrogen. Yes? Um, can you use your compost as mulch? You can. That's, this, this is what I'm doing in the garden right now. Is, um, we have wood chips in the aisle, and that's keeping down the weeds in our aisles, so we don't have to, to be constantly dealing with weeds in the aisles. And we are mulching with compost in our beds. So we literally put on a multi-inch layer of compost in the bed. What's really nice about that is it follows the same principles. It creates that, that mulch. It keeps the soil underneath cool. Um, but it's something that you can seed directly into. Um, so there's, and you don't dig it in? We don't dig it in. You no. We just mulch it, it right on the top. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and we've we've been we did some beds last season, and it, it worked really well. Question? Yeah. Does that include like fruits and vegetables as well? Part of that mulch? I mean, a compost. Um, that is comp fully composted compost, oh. so it's not raw compost. Yes, in the back. So you're talking about vegetables, kitchen scraps? So what we would do is we would compost, we'd have a specific compost pile that we would compost that with, and that's a whole other topic of how to make sure you have the right ratios, have a good compost pile. But we'd compost that first and then put it on as a mulch on top of the soil. Um, when we did the cover crop, that's what we did. We cut the cover crop off, we decomposed it. It was actually kind of half composted, and then we brought it back as a mulch on top. Yeah. Do we have a... Another, yes? How do you know if your soil has enough phosphorus, nitrogen, and all these things you were talking about? <laughs> That's a very good question. Number one is you can do a soil test. Like, we're, I'm not here to tell you that you can't, like, you know, soil tests are bad. Um, they can give you a general ballpark, but like we just saw that last slide, it may not tell the whole story. You may have, um, you may have minerals there that are not showing up on the soil test that could be made available by soil microbes and those plant exudates breaking down minerals in, in your soil, et cetera. Um, you know, all I can say is that the numbers, you know, with, Gabe's, with Gabe Brown's farm is basically the exact same soil as it were as those other farms, but he has much higher mineral content as it were that's showing up in the soil test, but he's never added, I mean, for the last 10, 15 years, um, minerals to his soil. So they're coming from somewhere, right? Um, but I would say, you know, if you, a soil test is a great way to start out if you just want to get a general bar park idea. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. We still, like in my gardening courses, I still teach people how to do a soil test if they want to. Mm -hmm. Yes? So that last slide, the bottom one, they had the livestock, so that means that they're applying the livestock manure to their garden or just letting them, how is that working? The, so yeah, with livestock, um, in his context, he's doing it on a ranching scale. And so he would have a field and he would put his, his animals through the field and then he would come back and grow a cash crop on it or, or something like that. Um, in a more home garden context, you may 
let your chickens in on a bed that is, you know, you, you just harvested everything off of the bed and you let your chickens in and, and run over in a high density. You know, you could have a lot of chickens in a small space. They drop a bunch of droppings and then you move them on. Or you could have your chickens in a pen and you just collect the drop. Like the Paul Gattucci or whatever who does the back to eat in, he has his chicken coop and then he takes the droppings from the chickens and puts them out on his mulch and just lets the rain and the natural process um, pull it down through. I have a question in the back. Livestock, I think livestock is one of the big differences, um, and and high density, yeah. Um, between between those, yeah, it's it's creating this this cycle that, um, and if you think about it, once again, like animals are a part of what God created. So here's what their answer was, because when we when they talked to us about these six principles, they said, you can do it without the livestock, but it takes a lot longer. If you have the livestock, it boosts and speeds up the process of building up your soil health. Yeah. For, for those of us who have a small area, it's a lot easier to have a bag of steer manure than, than a cow. Uh, so does that not, is that okay or not okay? Um, it depends on where it comes from. Like I would want to know what, how that cow was treated, it was grown, like is it getting pumped up with antibiotics and, and others, other such things, and how well it's decomposed well, like as well. If you can get the raw stuff from a farm, I would get it from a farm where I knew where it was coming from. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if, you are, if any of you are interested, um, just pass out. Some of you got these cards uh, before. Um, one of the things that we do is we teach, we teach organic gardening as well as we've uh, created a garden planning calendar and you can get, your, get a free version of it if you guys are interested. Does anybody, would anybody like to get one of these cards? I'll just pass these. If you already have one, you can just pass it. You have one, yeah. Um, pass it along. And it's a way that you can, if you jump on the email list, you can keep in touch with us as well. Yeah. You can buy, I, I believe, you, yes, you can buy mycorrhizal fungi. You can buy microorganisms that you can put into your soil that can potentially help jumpstart that process. Um, it was interesting uh, because this was one of the questions that came up with these gentlemen as well. And one of their answers was, you know, if you look at nature, there are, and I forget how many they said. It was like, let's just say it was like 1,500 or 5,000 kinds. It may be more than that of mycorrhizal fungi. And when you buy it, you're only getting seven or eight, right? So um, it would be better, as it were, to encourage whatever is naturally available in, in your area. Um, but you can jumpstart the process potentially by, you know, adding some to your... Um, you just don't know, you know, of those seven or eight, are, they, are those the most ideal for your crops, for your vegetables, etc.? Yes, yeah, so if you follow the soil health principles that we just covered, um, it will provide an environment that will 
cause those organisms to thrive and the mycorrhizal fungi, fungi etc. And once again, I would say there, was, there, was be, there would be no hurt in purchasing some to help try and jumpstart that process. Um, but just realize that in the larger constant context, there is a lot more, uh, a lot more kinds. Yes? Um, I th the same soil health principles would apply. Mm -hmm. Yeah, trees, trees communicate with each other in the in the forest as well. Yeah. Yeah. So the question was actually I, I'm supposed to be repeating these questions for the recording, but the question was I live in South Dakota, right, where the where the frost line is very deep. Um, Gabe Brown. He lives up in the, it's either in Minnesota or the Dakotas. Um, his growing season is very small and um, he has abundant life in his soil. So basically, um, I don't know what they do. I don't know if they crawl, go down deeper. You know, it's, uh, that's uh, an aspect that I don't, that I'm not fully aware of. I don't know if they go down deeper into the soil where it doesn't freeze or if they can just handle those temperatures. I know that there are microorganisms that can handle much diversity of temperatures than we can as humans. So I, I don't know exactly. Yes? So upstate New York, would it be as important to put mulch in my house? I'm thinking like, would tomatoes really ever want mulch where we live? Yeah, upstate New York, would tomatoes ever really want mulch where you live? Um, it's going to be better for your soil. Um, because if the soil is bare, even in your location, if you get, it, you know, in the sun, when you have high intensity sunlight, your temperature in your soil is going to rise, etc. And so, would my ground-up maple leaves, uncomposted, you start Ground-up maple leaves, yeah. Mm -hmm. You could use them as mulch. Mm -hmm. You don't have to compost them now. Yeah. You could just put them on. Yes. Probably. I have not watched that specifically myself, but these are, um, like, like I said, the organization Understanding Ag, they go over these principles, but there are other people that, use, that share these same or similar principles as well. It's not like a patented recipe or something like that. Um, yeah. Well, thank you. That that encourages me because it's always exciting when it's a blessing. Yes. So if you don't recommend killing or loosening up the soil with a fork, how do you put the seed on it? Yeah. So you know the the truth is there are some people that will start out like I wanted to when I was doing this with my dad. By the way, my dad on Friday is giving a talk specifically on no-till gardening. So if you're interested in that, um, you, can, you can come and he'll go into practicals. Um, but you know, in our case, we just chiseled away at the soil until we could get that transplant in, right? When my dad wanted to really just do it hardcore. Um, my inclination was to go in with the broad fork and say, okay, I'm going to loosen it up the first time, then I'm going to mulch it, and then I'm not going to do anything after that. And there are people that do that as well. There are some people on farming scales that will do that with tilling. 
they recognize that tilling is not good for the soil, but they're like, okay, I need to somehow get the soil loose the first time. So they'll go in, they'll till it. And then ever after that, they'll put the mulch on, they'll make sure and keep it loose using the principles. Yeah. So you're, you're transplanting, you're not sowing seeds. We do do some of both, but most of what we do is transplanting. Yeah. In the, in the specific bed case, we did a little bit of direct seeding in it, I think, but most of it was transplanted. Yeah. All right. Yes, Christina. Uh, with the high density crops, what do you suggest for like, if you're doing a market garden, you want a bed of this and a bed of that. The high rotation, rotation you said in there, like flipping beds and stuff, is that how you get the high density or do you actually recommend putting like multiple crops in the same bed? <laughs> That's good. It's a good question. It's something that we're experimenting with right now, uh, or I should say my dad is experimenting with right now. He's experimenting with more multi-species within a bed. And some ways that he would do that is maybe grow a line of cover crop in the middle with some of his you know, <laughs> crops that he wants to actually harvest off of next to it and just keep the cover crop cut short so that it doesn't get in the way. There's different ways that you could apply it. Um, but one of, uh, one of them, if you're not doing that, just the, the crop rotation itself will add that diversity. Yeah, yeah. All right, I know that we are, we are a bit way over time. I don't know what the next, <laughs> the next thing is, lunch, lunch is. So I'm happy to, to, to talk and answer more questions, but you all are also free to, free to go to lunch. This is the... Thank you. Yes, you're welcome. Thank you all. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.